We are continuing on in our series in Paul's letters, these surveys, quick surveys that we have taken into the letters. We've come to Philippians today to his letter to the church in Philippi. It's page 980 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. We've been looking at Paul's letters and this letter, this is the last of the of the church letters, the last of the letters that he has written uh, specifically to churches as we have walked through them chronologically, Galatians and Thessalonians and First and Second Corinthians, Romes, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, even the last book we looked at was Philemon, the letter that he wrote to a layperson in the Colossae church. We've come now to Philippians. This is the last church letter that Paul wrote while he was imprisoned in Rome. Uh, it, it is couples well with Ephesians and Colossians, the other books that we have, have looked at, uh, but was a different, it was sent with a different person, sent to a different area of the country. This book, Philippians, is filled with, with deep theological truths, filled with foundational teachings. Just look, just look at a couple of them. Let me just jump around here to a couple of verses that you'll know, that you'll recognize as they come from Philippians. Philippians chapter one, verse six says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 121 says, for me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In chapter two of Philippians, he says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 6, He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Chapter 4, verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Huge doctrinal truths, huge foundational teachings. Many of those, maybe I even this morning shared one of your life verses that comes from scripture that you have set your heart on that helps you as you walk through the fight of faith. Philippians is filled with lots of those. And so this morning... What I want to do is is just help us to walk through these first couple of chapters, chapters 1 and chapter 2, so that we might see it and better know it and understand it. And in order to do that, I think we need to go back to the beginning of, of how did this church get started? Who are the people of Philippi and what do we know about them? And to do that, we have to review in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 is the story, when we walk through Acts, you'll remember this, it's the story of, of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke all heading into Philippi. It happens after uh, Paul is, is traveling, the companions are traveling together, and, and he's, he's in the northern part of, of what would now be, be Turkey and Asia there, 
And, and it, it tell, as Luke tells the story in Acts, uh, Paul had, had desired to go one way but couldn't. He had tried to go another way, but, but God didn't enable him to do that. And, and he came to this spot where he wasn't sure where to go and, and had a vision of the Macedonian man calling him over into, into what is now Europe, calling him over into, into what is now Greece, that he might come and, and share the gospel over there. And so they do. They head over and they come to Philippi. It's the one of the first cities that they come to as they as they came into the Macedonian area, what's now Greece. It's the first of the of the European churches that Paul plans. When they get to Philippi, there's there's no synagogue. If you remember Paul when he when he made through his, his journeys, he would go to the synagogue first and he would begin to preach at the synagogue to the Jews that they might find hope and realize that the Messiah was Jesus, that he had come. But he gets to Philippi, there is no synagogue. And so uh, Luke and his companions on the Sabbath head outside of town just a little ways to the riverside. And when they get there, they find some women who have gathered together to to visit. They're not even believers, but one of them at least, Lydia, is a God-fearing woman. And so they begin to visit with the women and Lydia... Uh, a seller of purple goods, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 16. Lydia, God opens her heart and her mind, it says in Acts 16. And that she comes to faith. God helped her to pay attention and to, and to understand. And she comes to faith. She's, she's moved, she's encouraged, and, and she's baptized on the spot. Some of the other women are also changed in that moment. And, and they invite Paul and his companions to come in and to, and to stay with them. And while they're there, uh, there's an, a, another girl, a slave girl from the city. And she begins to follow Paul and his companions around. Do you remember this? From Acts chapter 16, she follows them around and she shouts out, these men are servants of the Most High God and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. She has a spirit of, of divination, it says, inside of her, a demon inside of her that recognizes and sees the work of Jesus on the hearts of Paul and the others. These men are servants of the Most High God. They proclaim to you the way of salvation. We think that would be a good thing. It's all true. It's exactly what they're doing. And as she would follow them around, making a scene amongst all of the city, finally Paul, at one point it says, is greatly annoyed. And Paul says to this demon that's inside the girl that she is to get away. And the demon instantly, immediately, immediately leaves. It obeys exactly, in the exact moment, submits to Jesus' name. The owners, though, of the slave girl, if you remember this. In fact, Luke says it in Acts chapter 16. The way he says it is that when the demon left, so did the way for these men to make any money. Um, now this girl was no longer the scene in the middle of the city. And so they're upset with Paul. They uh, tell a story to the authorities and Paul and Silas are arrested. And they're thrown, in fact, they're, they're thrown in the deepest, darkest part of the dungeon. While they're in the deepest, darkest part of the dungeon there in Philippi, they're, they're beaten. Um, they're beaten with rods 39 times. They're shackled, um, spread out, shackled inside the deepest, darkest part. They have no idea what's about to happen. Their future is in doubt. And it's in that moment, it's in that moment that they begin to sing. And they begin to pray. 
and they sing hymns and pray psalms. And the earth shakes as they do. An earthquake happens, the, the shackles break off, the, the jail doors are opened, and the captives, the captives surely, all of the captives surely would escape, but instead they're entranced, I think, by what Paul and Silas, who are there singing and praying and praising in the deepest part of the dungeon, they're entranced by what's going on in and through them. And so no one leaves. They all stay in jail. The jailer, though, comes, sees the doors are wide open. He knows that he is going to be, as all of the captives have surely escaped, he's going to be captured. He's going to be put to death. And so he is just about to fall on his sword. He's just about to take his own life when Paul and Silas call out to them and say, do not, do not kill yourselves. There is no need for you to do that. We're all here. And the guards, seeing that, knowing what has happened, probably even hearing some of the singing and the praying that Paul and Silas have been doing from the depth of the dungeon, says to them, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's answer is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And so he does. He and his family are saved. The jailer takes him out of prison, brings them to his own home, begins to tend to their wounds, begins to, to feed them food, and he begins to rejoice in his faith and in the faith of his family. That's the beginning of the church in Philippi. Paul goes back to Philippi in the middle of his journeys. He travels back to Philippi a number of different times and goes back to visit with those same people. I'm sure he goes back and talks to Lydia and to the other ladies that he met beside the river bottom on that day. I'm sure he goes back probably to that same jailer's home and remembers and reminds them of the truths from that very first day. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He goes back, he knows those faces. He loves, he loves these people. He's watched the church flourish and he's seen the impact of the gospel on the lives of these believers. In fact, he calls them, if you look at chapter four, verse one, he calls the church in Philippi, these believers, his joy and his crown. He loves them. In fact, in chapter one, you can see it in verse three, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I thank God for you. This church has partnered with Paul early on from that very beginning as the church began to grow. In fact, when he talks in, in 2 Corinthians about the offering that he's taking up for, those, for the, the Jews that are suffering from the famine back in Jerusalem, he's taking an offering from all of those churches, trying, really trying to bridge the gap between the Gentile church and the Jewish believers. Or, and, and so he's trying to, to, to take an offering and, and says in 2 Corinthians that, that the church in Philippi has given even more than they are able to do, that they, they don't have much in the way of means, but have been generous in heart and have partnered in the gospel. They're partnering with him here as well. In fact, this very letter comes because the church in Philippi has seen that Paul is in jail or has heard that Paul is in jail in Rome 
And so they want to send him a gift. They want to send him some help. And so they provide a generous gift that's brought to them by a man named Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus travels from Philippi all the way to Rome bringing this gift so that, so that Paul might be strengthened, so that Paul might be helped. Epaphroditus comes. In fact, it's not an easy it's not an easy journey for Epaphroditus. In fact, he, he risks his very life, Paul says here in Philippians, that, he's near, that he almost passes away, that he was near death. But they have partnered with him. So, what does Paul want? When he writes this letter, when he's sending this thank you note, really, back to the church in Philippi, this church that, that started from the very beginning with Paul speaking to the ladies by, beside the river. What does he want for them? What's the theme of Philippians? It's joy. What does he want for the church in Philippi? It's joy. Joy. It's num- the, 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 the word joy, it comes 12 times. The Greek word for joy shows up 12 times in this letter to the Philippians. He wants them to have joy. Not not a happiness, that, that is too trite for what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a deep-seated settledness in the gospel. A soul settledness that comes from the hope that we have in Jesus. Paul wants them to know joy. And Paul has already begun to show that to him. It's the joy that begins to stir in Paul and Silas when they're in the deepest parts of the dungeons, shackled up, that causes them to pray and to sing. It's the kind of deep, settled joy that enables Paul to be chained to a guard under lock and key here in Rome, imprisoned in Rome, without knowledge of what's about to happen to him, and yet have a settled confidence that either he will be delivered or he'll face death. Look with me, if you will, at chapter 1. We'll start in verse uh, 18. Paul says, Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, him being imprisoned in jail. This will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that from the very, from full, with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you, with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He said earlier in chapter 1, he says, he says I, I, I want you to know that what's happening to me here in prison is for the advancement of the gospel. 
It says the, the, all, all of the guards, in fact, all of, all of Caesar's household, he says at one point, they have heard and know about Jesus because of my time here. That God is using this to give me joy. Not happiness. It's hard to be happy in these kinds of places, in these kinds of moments. But for Paul, he says, I have a joy. And I want you to have that joy too. Whether I live or whether I die, whether this judgment that's about to come here in, in Rome, in this in his court case that's in Rome, whether, whether my life is over or I'm released and able to come back to you and to share with you whatever it is, I can have joy and I can have peace. Paul wants Paul wants the church in Philippi to know this gospel-settled joy. How can they know it? How can they understand it? How can they begin to have, have an understanding of what Paul's talking about in the midst of this joy? He's going to give several examples here in this, in this letter to the Philippians of how they can see the gospel-settled joy at work in the hearts of believers, We'll look at most of those examples next week. Paul talks about his own example in Timothy and Epaphroditus. But the first example that he gives of how they can see and understand and know this gospel-centered, deep-seated settledness that produces joy in the life of a believer, he says, comes from the example of Jesus. Let's read it together in chapter 2. He shares... If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And he starts in verse 5 of chapter 2 with what is called the, the Christian hymn or the Christ hymn. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How can we know this deep, settled joy? How can we have this soul-satisfying joy? It comes, it comes through the example that's set by Jesus, Paul says. The example that's set by Jesus. And this, this Christian hymn is, a, is, is, this is a, one commentator said it, it's an inverted parabola 
of Christ's life, an inverted parabola. Instead of, a, instead of the line going up and coming back down, it goes down and comes back up. And we see it. We, we read it there. Jesus, Jesus, who is in the very form God, equal with God. That's, that's the highest point on the parabola. He is God. But he doesn't count equality with God, something to be grasped. And he begins this downward cycle on the parabola, inverted parabola. He does not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead makes himself nothing. Christ takes the opposite approach of the first man, the first Adam. That's how Paul talks about it when he says it in Romans that there was this first Adam that came and he did consider equality with God something to be grasped. That's the very reason that he and Eve took the fruit from the tree in the garden was because they wanted to have the same kind of knowledge as God. They wanted to understand. They wanted to have the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to have everything that God had. They'd been tempted and tricked by the serpent. They considered equality with God and they wanted to grasp it. They wanted to hold it. They wanted to be like God. And every person ever born since Adam and Eve have had the same desire. We want to be our own God. But Jesus did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped, but instead emptied himself and took on the form of servant. From the very beginning, his birth, his birth took place. The shepherds sang, the angels announced, Jesus came not as a king, but as a baby. He lived a life of service. In fact, on the night before he's killed, he, he wraps a towel around him and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. He takes the very lowest job all of his life. He makes himself nothing and takes on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, Paul says. He humbled himself, not just serving the needs of others, not just feeding and healing, but he becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He makes himself nothing. He takes on the form of a servant and then takes on the form of a sacrifice. He becomes obedient to death on a cross. Verse 9, therefore, because of that, because he did not seek equality with God, something to be grasped, and because he made himself nothing and took on the very form of servant, because he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, because he took on the form of a sacrifice, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name. 
so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's through the resurrection, through his ascension, that God is exalting Jesus, is exalting his Son above all names. Every people, every tribe in all of history, in all time, will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul points, how can we know joy? He says, this is it, the example of Jesus. And yet, as we look at that, we think this, this is too lofty of an example. This is, this is an impossible example None of us, we, we all have wanted equality with God. We all have, have lived out that very first part, but none of us have considered equality with God something that we cannot be grasped, but instead emptied ourselves and become a servant and a sacrifice. What is Paul trying to tell us here? I think Paul is... This is pointing to the example of Jesus. I think Paul is telling the church in Philippi, I think he's telling us here at Richland, that joy, this deep-seated joy that he wants them to have comes from obedience. Jesus was obedient to the Father. That joy comes from humility. He humbled himself, both before God the Father and also and also before those on earth, especially his disciples. That joy comes from sacrifice. That he became obedient even to death on a cross. That joy comes from faithfulness. And that joy comes from the right ordering of things. Joy comes from confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's an inverted parabola. And Paul says, we see in Jesus, we see in his example for us that there is hope for us to have this deep, settled joy. He commands it over and over in chapter four, we'll see next week, He commands us again, rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice, a double command. You are to have joy and to find joy and to sing of joy. He'll give some more examples of of his own life next week in the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus who have fought and struggled for joy. He wants us to know joy. That comes from obedience to God, from humility to those around us, sacrifice, faithfulness, and from confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Worship team is going to come this morning and help us. We sang a new song this morning. We're going to sing it again. That we might sing hallelujah. That we might trust only in the hope that comes through the name of Jesus. That's Paul's command to the church in Philippi. 
How can you know joy? It's follow this example. How can we have hope? It's follow the example of Jesus that we might sing hallelujah. Stand with me this morning as we continue to worship, please. In life and death, Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to Him belong. Who holds our days within His hands? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end the love of Christ in which we stand oh sing hallelujah our hope springs eternal oh sing hallelujah now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good, God is good. Where is His grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood, who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ? Oh, sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess, Christ our hope in life and death. Unto the grave, what will we sing? Christ he lives, Christ he lives, and what reward? heaven bring everlasting life with him there we will rise to meet the Lord then sin and death will be destroyed and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forever Oh, sing hallelujah. 
comes from chapter 2 in Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, if you have always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Thank you for coming this morning.